Oh, hey, it's me. That weird cut of meat at the store that's always discounted, but you have no idea what I am, how to cook me, or how to eat me. Oh, hey, fancy seeing you here. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Naomi, your host, and this is Mindful Movement. We talk about psychology, fitness, nutrition, and how all of those things are kind of the same thing, but not at all, or rather how they're connected. So let's get to it. Let's talk about the carnivore diet. Before we get into it, I want to be crystal clear that I am not prescribing you the carnivore diet. I'm simply explaining what it is. I do not have experience directly with this diet. But should the opportunity arise, I might try it out because that's just what I do. 30 days, you know? I, as a small side note, I freaking love vegetables like a freak. I grew up eating them. So the idea of the carnivore diet, usually for most people, is like, oh my God, that sounds great. And for me, it sounds, it's probably the dread people feel when they think about eating an all-vegetable diet. Like, I'm like, sign me up for the veggie diet, but the all-meat diet makes me so sad. Um, the only other person on the planet who probably understands this is my own sister. <laughs> so, shout out. All right, let's get into it. What is the carnivore diet? So, the carnivore diet is Basically, this idea or this thought that people should be eating an an animal-based diet, not a plant-based diet. That means eating nose to tail, every single part of the animal, ligaments, bones, skin, organs, especially organs. That's where a lot of the micronutrient comes from. And then obviously the muscle tissue. In today's Western world, we mostly just eat the muscle tissue of animals, which is really like the least nutrient-dense part of the whole animal. So the first claim that people often make that advocate the carnivore diet is that of this. So there's toxins in plants, which is well-studied and well-known. But the idea for people who are for it basically say plants are good to eat because they contain all of these plant toxins, but we eat them in such tiny amounts that they're actually little hormetic stressors. That means a little stress that induces a good thing in the body. And so it's net positive. The argument of the carnivore diet is that it's net negative, meaning we're actually eating so many of these plant toxins that it's overwhelming our systems and we can't handle them. So what are these plant toxins? What the heck are they doing in my food? First of all, isn't it weird that the animal eats the plants and then gets rid of the toxins? And you know that saying, you are what you eat? Like, maybe we should just be eating animals if it were all that simple. I don't know, guys. I'm just here to slang the info. You make your own decisions. So, oxalates. Oxalates are a natural occurring molecule that basically exist to help get rid of extra calcium and they exist in dark lean bleh, dark leafy green vegetables like kale spinach and they're really abundant in plants but the issue comes in humans because too much oxalate means too much formation of kidney stones 
<laughs> which is not good. So if you're a kidney stone person, eating too many oxalates is not a good idea for you. So they say. But the idea here is essentially that oxalates are a small plant compound that's really just causing an issue because it's meant to protect the plant. That is a common theme you'll notice. The next are high histamine foods. So these are things like alcohol, but they're also foods, like everyday normal foods that we don't mess with. Bananas, tomatoes, wheat germ, beans, papaya, chocolate, citrus fruit, nuts, all the things, right? So why is that a problem? Why can't we have high histamine foods? So histamine intolerance isn't a sensitivity to histamine, but an an indication that you've developed too much histamine. So histamine is a chemical that's responsible for the major functions of like communication to the brain. It triggers release of stomach acid to help digestion. And it basically triggers immune response. So if you have too much histamine, your body's like, ah, immune response all over the place. So that's obviously not the best thing in the world. And it's, again, compounds that exist in plants to protect plants and we're eating the plants. It only makes sense, too, as a small sidebar, that plants have all of these defenses to keep them from being eaten because all the ones that got eaten got eaten. But the ones that didn't get eaten get chewed up and spit back out. And thus, you know, they still need to grow and exist. So anyways, salicylates are another one. Salicylate is the general term for basically any chemical that has chemical that has salicylic acid as its base. Salicylic acid is a natural occurring organic acid found in a variety of plants. These plants produce it as part of their defense system against disease. Like you've probably put salicylic on your face if you've ever had acne. There's smaller degrees of this that exist in the plant to help protect the plant. And here we go again, eating it. Saponins are one of the last chemical compounds we're going to talk about. They're bitter. They occur in all kinds of foods, legumes, vegetables, herbs, things like quinoa. Um, They get their name because they actually lather up when like shaken around in water, which is very, very interesting. And they exist in the plant again to protect the plant because it makes the plant bitter and just not good, not palpable for us humans and other animals. The last chemical compound is lectins. Lectins are found in legumes and beans, and they actually occur. There's plant lectins and animal lectins. We know that the plant lectins, well, I should say this. We're not too sure what the plant lectins do, but we're assuming that they help protect the plant. But we also think that they might increase gut permeability. So eating things like legumes and beans that contain lectins might not be the best idea if you have a suspected or diagnosed leaky gut like we had talked about before. So obviously the claim here is plant compounds are going to have side effects. There's going to be tons of inflammation, gut permeability, and all those little plant toxins are going to wreak havoc on your system over time, especially if that's all that you're eating. The next claim here is if you guys know Rhonda Patrick, she does a lot of research on sulforaphane and sulforaphane is amazing. It's 
released when you basically break the chemical walls of certain vegetables or in this case like broccoli sprouts they exist in high high doses in broccoli sprouts and less high doses in broccoli so the claim here is glucoraphanin, which is a glucocosinate, is sort of like an unsprung trap. We have to spring the trap by chewing to create sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. Oxidation is the gain and loss of electrons. More on that in a moment. But sulforaphane is essentially an oxidant. It's a taker of electrons, not a giver. Thus, it turns on your antioxidant response mechanism, or hormesis, NRF2 signaling system. So that little protein that regulates expression of antioxidant proteins that protects against oxidative damage and it's triggered by injury and inflammation. NRF2 is our friend. It goes in and it zips everything up. So the reason people like Rhonda Patrick like sulforaphane is because it signals our own glutathione response. So there's this argument here that, well, let's go back. Oxidation is the gain and loss of electrons. Let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. To be an oxidant is to give a molecule or a free radical to balance it out so things become more stable. Glutathione is our own homemade antioxidant. So like we talked about before, sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. It's actually giving away a molecule and then that signals our NRF2 to come in, produce glutathione, right? That response and come zip everything up and produce more antioxidants. The idea for people who are pro-sulforaphane or antioxidants is to say, again, we're at a net positive. But the argument here is maybe that we're actually at a net negative and we're better off not risking it and just intaking or making or buffering our own glutathione response in other ways. So it turns out our NRF2 factors, in other words, our own antioxidants, turn like turn on all kinds of ways. And sulforaphane is just one of these ways and sulforaphane might even have side effects besides the hormesis that we just talked about it's a goitrogenic food and it prevents absorption of iodine which means it can raise the chance of goiters in your thyroid if you don't know what a goiter is it's this big it's a goiter <laughs> it's this big lump on your thyroid and they're really common in places that have high goitrogenic foods and in really uh people who do not eat enough iodine so to speak so the argument is is the is the risk worth the benefit shouldn't we just be making our own glutathione and a side note here like you can also supplement with glutathione so it might be more advantageous at least from a carnivore perspective to supplement or signal this nrf2 in a different way the next claim that people of the carnivore diet say and this is more of a defense is that People will go through and they'll be like, you cannot get all your nutrition through animal products. And the argument of the carnivore diet is that you can, so long as you eat nose to tail as we were meant to. There's 10 milligrams of vitamin C in just an ounce of liver. And it's really common for us. I don't know if you've seen the work on Linus Pauling, but he has all this beautiful work and research on bolus dosing vitamin C. The argument here is that maybe we shouldn't be bolus dosing vitamin C and eating liver and other organs is enough to give us what we need instead of going over and above vitamin k2 is another important one vitamin k1 and k2 are different 
and K1 is measured through the FDA and it'll tell you that liver has almost no K1, but K2 is actually what you need. And K2 is what's found in a lot of these organs. Folate, folate actually is in organ meats. It's heavily found in, in, um, plant plants, but it's also in organ meats, right? You are what you eat. You're taking all that stuff out of, or like say the cow is or whatever animal you're eating, and it's putting it in a more bioavailable form for humans. That's an argument anyways. So another claim here is that there's a healthy user bias and that even though there's a lack of studies, there's still so many people who have really, really good evidence of their own experience that says, you know, I eat the carnivore diet and I feel great now. I feel amazing. So I think that in a lot of these studies, when we talk about the healthy user bias, it says that when we study these populations of people, a lot of times they are studies that that, that aren't clean cut. It's hard to look at a study, right? So if I'm looking at epidemiology and I'm looking at, okay, who are the people who eat kale? They're usually vegan and they take really good care of their body. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They work out. And those are the people who eat plants. The people who eat red meat usually like, like to eat Big Macs, fast food, don't exercise and live a really unhealthy lifestyle. So the argument here is that all the studies that have been conducted on meat are kind of skewed and aren't fair because they're looking at, well, the healthy user bias comes in, right? The people who eat plants already care more more about their health than the people who probably tend towards red meat. Leave that for what you may, but I do think that there's some truth there personally. There's this other big, big, big claim by people who are proponents of the carnivore diet, and this is probably the biggest one and everything I've been alluding to thus far. It's that animal proteins do not raise inflammatory markers in the body, and there are no studies on the carnivore diet at all, just lots of individual case studies. I believe that there's a few people who are working on doing studies on the carnivore diet, but there's just, as I had mentioned, only studies on red meat, really. So... There was a 10-week study where they replaced 200 calories of carbohydrate with 200 calories of red meat. Inflammatory markers did not go up, but instead trended down. The argument goes, animal protein raises inflammatory markers, is biased on epidemiology, which is largely susceptible to the healthy user bias. So everything I just talked about, meaning we like to say that red meat causes all of these inflammatory markers to go up, but most likely the people that we're studying probably aren't very healthy to begin with so it's not really a fair draw and I do kind of agree with this so what have we learned today we've talked a lot about plant compounds and plant toxins and how those might be less than ideal for humans to consume and I do think that there is a little bit of credit to this claim Am I going to go change my diet overnight? Maybe. I might change my diet for 30 days and let you guys know how it goes. There's always, there's a saying that there's no such thing as a biological free lunch. And I think that the carnivore diet mm, probably, 
probably it's true for the carnivore diet as well. So what that means is everything is risk to reward. Everything comes with both a positive and a negative. And I think that this diet can work really, really well for certain populations of people. There's, there's so many stories, especially of people who have like GI issues and, um, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS going on this carnivore diet and they feel world's better. I think if you feel really good on a diet, you should listen to your body and you should just do it. You know what I mean? I also believe out there that there's people who are going to go on this diet and they're going to feel God awful, terrible. Listen to your body. Your genetics might be different than somebody else. That is all for today. I hope, I hope, I hope that I've taught you a little bit about the carnivore diet. This is different from the keto diet. Okay. I will have an episode on the keto diet. I have many years of experience with it. Don't you worry. I've actually done that one for a long time. I'm not keto right now, but I like that diet for many of the reasons why I like this carnivore diet as well. I like all the diets. I like the vegan diet too for certain reasons. I also don't like it for a lot of reasons. My bias is showing. And with that, I'm out of here. Have a good one. I will see you tomorrow. Have a great today and we'll catch you next time.